My name is Anthony Capazzoli. I am the host of the Dismantle Life podcast and I'm a recovering alcoholic and drug addict after nearly 40 years of addiction. I've been clean and sober for nearly four years and work hard to help others find recovery. Join me each episode to learn from my sober superhero guests and how they went from the darkness of addiction into the sunlight of recovery. Dismantled Life can be found on Digitent Podcasts, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. My show is dedicated to recovery from alcohol and drug addiction, as you know. And I'm curious, <clears throat> you know, what your thoughts are around that tied to human nature and, and people's behavior. So before we dive in, though, maybe you can give people a little overview of who you are and, and why you're on the show today. Yeah, I don't like that part, but, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I, I've always been, you know, like a pretty, pretty background kind of person. I enjoy yeah. being in the background, but um 20 years of studying how relationships function and um, in all contexts. So it's uh, the end result of that is that we all are recognized in our relationship by our behavior. Mm -hmm. And um, when the, the topic of, of addiction is really interesting to me because I see people who are addicted to like being the center of attention and yeah. other other aspects of life that aren't you know it's not like the headliner addictions but um can at times be uh just as as troubling in relationships as a substance uh, addiction and so i listened to a couple of your podcasts earlier just to like get in the flow of of how you do things sure and um you seem like you're really open to uh, understanding the whole process and that that gives me an opening but I'm a little bit hesitant Anthony Why? because what I do is I help people to resolve their addiction completely and mm. uh, that happens because most addictions are rooted in a subconscious belief about a relationship that's not healthy and the addictive behavior ends up being some in some form or other a pain reliever to that subconscious pain i would agree a hundred percent with that and so the it's a it's a paradigm shift from where you're at and most of the addiction communities at is, is in that if we can resolve that subconscious belief that yeah. is painful then we don't need the behavior or the substance or whatever the pain reliever is because the pain's not there anymore. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I, so one of the phrases that I like to use is create a life that you don't have to run and hide from, uh, it, maybe in a nutshell. And, and I agree with that. I think you have to work. I had to work hard. I think people in recovery, whatever they're recovering from, have to work hard to create a life that they enjoy every day. Like, And you, you have to take well, this is my opinion. I, I believe we have to take on the demons head on. You can't hide from them. You can't hope they go away. You can't cover them up with the rug. You can't do anything with that. You, you have to be open and get right to the root of the problem, source it, create different relationships and routines, and off you go. And there's no quick fix. I mean, at least I don't believe there's a quick fix. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, uh, every, every person is unique and yeah. individual. 
So um, I, I steer away from the absolute statements of this will cure, fix, Perfect. or yeah. resolve, whatever. Um, I've worked with a lot of a lot of addicts, and there's two factors that come into play. The first one has to do with uh, something I'm sure you're very aware of is their commitment to changing this part of their life. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the concept of, of hitting rock bottom and uh, some people bounce when they they get there. Bounce a few times. (laughs) Hard. (laughs) And, and um, I, myself, I, I, uh, experienced a shift in my life where my my familial circumstance divorce and everything and all my whole life seemed to just just fall apart and um at the outset of that i realized that i had three addictions the the most obvious one that i was aware of was a, a sexual addiction that i was just preoccupied with sex and i didn't act out a lot at least with anybody, but it was a preoccupation and it had uh, over overpowered most of my thinking about my life. And um, that qualifies as an addiction that you can't live your life. You can't make decisions in, without it being a factor. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, that ruling element, the other two, were um, anger. I was addicted to anger because it gave me a sense of power and control. And that was the the third one was I was addicted to controlling everything. I wanted my whole world to be just the way I wanted it to be. And resolving, completely resolving those were, uh, it, it happened relatively quickly when I, when I uncovered the false beliefs in my subconscious that was the root of the pain, because once the pain was gone, then I didn't need the pain reliever anymore. And um, on my my journey, <laughs> on my journey, I um, had this this moment where I realized that I was admitting my addiction. And that the road ahead was a lifetime of vigilance. Hmm. And you talk about that with your your routines and you're constantly being aware of uh, your surroundings to make sure that there isn't something that is going to trigger you and yeah. consume your life. Yeah, right? that's true. It's absolutely true. And um, so I... I was a software engineer at the time and <laughs> I had lots of experience with very complicated systems um, resolving down to a single line of code that wasn't written correctly, correcting that line of code, re uh, initializing the program, and then it would run fine without the bug. <laughs> and that's the way I viewed my myself. I, I realized that this behavior or these behaviors uh, were the product of something going on subconsciously. And if I could discover that line of code, and this was just transferring my, my career experience makes sense to the human, right. And, and looking at myself as this 
this mechanism of rules, like in subconscious life lessons. And uh, if I could resolve it down to the root issue and and correct that line of code, then I would be free of it. And I wouldn't have to be vigilant for the rest of my life. Hmm. And so that was the driver for me. And uh, 20 years later, working with a lot of different addicts, the, the two factors that come into play is first, if they're committed enough to be really vulnerable to open up and dis, uh, do the introspection to explore and, and to find the, that root cause. And the second one is, and this may surprise you, I don't think it will, but um, some people, uh, the payoff of being an addict is bigger than yeah. the payoff of cleaning up. I totally get and, that. I actually get that. Yeah. It's uh yeah, the cherry on top, they they chase they like chasing the dragon, they get the cherry and they're happy. They like that. Uh and that's a that's a big part of it. You you you, you the way I say it, not as eloquently as you, is you have to be sick of your own shit. <laughs> uh but I agree with you. I mean it, the payoff to get better has to be better than the payoff to continue with your addiction. And I, I, I agree with that. So given those two factors, that if a person is really committed to resolving it and that that they're they're um internally yeah. they're committed to whatever it takes. Um and the <clears throat> other part is if they're willing to be really vulnerable. I haven't had a I haven't had a client as an addict who was not completely free of it afterward. And this is the most amazing thing. Well, like two or three months later, uh, I usually will get a text or an email or call or something. And, and they will share with me having experienced the triggering circumstance that where whatever their addiction was, that it, when it would consume them when they would lose all control, all resolve, and they experience that moment and walk through that fire. Hmm. And, and Unscathed. They didn't go it, back. Yeah, they didn't... It, it doesn't touch them. The emotion isn't there anymore. They used to drive them into that behavior. So you cognitively teaching them to relate to that trigger, whatever it might be, in a different way or how do you how are you dealing with that because that's a that's an important question i mean how, how do they re-relate to it <laughs> yeah that that is the question and it was the thing that was difficult for me to understand because my first uh my sexual addiction resolved itself i didn't i didn't know what had happened i had what is classified technically as a paradigm shift subconscious paradigm shifted and it was gone hmm. almost almost immediately within uh, a month's period of time i recognized that this shift had happened and it was gone i didn't know how or why hmm. but then i had two other things <laughs> that I, I recognized I needed to resolve. And it took me a long time to resolve, uh, especially the control element, because it was, there were an, uh, a number of subconscious beliefs that uh, drove that need to control everything. So the way it works, uh, it, I need to, I need to take 
you back to when you were born, Anthony, mm. if you can remember that. Okay. I'll try it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a long time ago. <laughs> uh, all of us are born with a blank slate. If, if you think about like a computer that doesn't have an operating system, when we're born, that's where we're at. We have a rudim rudimentary program, kind of like the BIOS on a computer that just uh, receives the operating system. And then the the uh, the computer becomes useful because you have an operating system. Yeah. And uh, sub our, our subconscious is like that. It's a blank slate. And we have all of the sensory input as a baby that begins to accumulate and eventually our subconscious abstracts life lessons. And we pattern subconsciously, we create an image of the world that we live in and an image of who we are and an image uh, in this sense of, of strategies to get from where we are to where we wanna be. And all of that is mapped out subconsciously. We sometimes cognitively, our conscious mind, sometimes we have some feeling for what's there, but 90% of our behavior is driven by our subconscious belief structures. And we have to have it that way because it's just too much to think about how to walk, how to, to get dressed, you know, recognizing a, a somebody's face or uh, uh, de decoding something that's going on with somebody socially. These are huge data processes that cognitively we don't have the process for because we need that cognitive process for other things. So this is our subconscious programming that's running all the time. And as we go through life, every... Uh, emotional, especially an emotional event, something that has weight to us, um, uh, triggers our subconscious to abstract some life lesson, some rule. Yeah. And often we end up in a paradoxical thing with a conflict. Paradoxical meaning that it's like a loop that just keeps going and can't be resolved. And it has a conflict in it, often about our identity, like in my case, my marriage fell apart. So I'm just a piece of shit because I couldn't make that marriage work. Mm -hmm. And um, I needed to resolve that subconscious belief structure in order to free my life to move on. Does that make sense? It does. It does. I always wonder, though, how do you get a whole... I, I get that one. That's clear. But but how do you... If, I, if I'm struggling... If my addiction is caused subconsciously by something that I am unaware of consciously, how do yes. I find or connect the dots to the subconscious issue that's in your words, driving the addiction? How do you get to uncover the right subconscious memory or sequence of memories? I, I'm curious, like how you get to the bios at that level. It's just I'm curious yeah. because. It, well, I, well, that's, that's exactly the question that everybody needs to ask. And, um, I'll give you, I'll share with you a client experience. Um, I think he was in mid thirties, very capable um, uh, builder kind of guy building trades. And he, he uh, had a history 
of being um, very dependable and and very entrepreneurial, very uh, creative in the way he approached work. And he would get to a certain level of success and um, then have a weekend binge that blacks out. And when he when it's all over with, whatever his level of success or whatever was going on at the time, his project would be destroyed. His yeah. tools would be gone. The relationships would be destroyed. And this was a consistent pattern in his life. So his addiction wasn't about drinking all the time. Yeah. It was a uh, self-sabotaging was- addiction of two alcohol and drugs. Like it's, I know a lot of people like that. I used to be like that. Uh, not quite to that level, but I get exactly that thread. So, um, what we do in a session, it's called <clears throat> anamiatry. It's not therapy. Um, we, uh, the anamiatrist asks a series of questions to follow the emotion that's associated with whatever the be- behavior is, whatever the troubling thing is. And with this particular client, what we, what asking those questions opens up the subconscious and we record those answers we and we're following the emotion because the the emotion is the product of the subconscious belief structure and it gives us energy to move us that's why we call it emotion energy putting us into motion and uh so we we in essence kind of tug on those strings get the client into the emotion of it and the subconscious begins to express the logic, if you will, (laughs) of what's going on, the subconscious beliefs. And when we record those, it gives us a basis to ask the next question to go a little bit deeper and the next question to go a little bit deeper. And eventually we pull the subconscious beliefs up. And, And this client had two beliefs. The first one was that he grew up poor. And because of that, he didn't deserve a high status of success. And the second belief is, or was that um, if he ever crossed that line, which was kind of like this ambiguous thing in Mm. his subconscious, that line of success, if he ever raised above that, everybody would know he was a fraud. Yeah. Because he didn't deserve to be there And in order to defend himself against them believing he was a fraud, he would have to always be above that mark, which he knew he couldn't do because life is not predictable that way. And so he would eventually fail on this big, you know, like uh, uh, stage of Mm. society and he couldn't he couldn't let that happen so he had to protect himself his subconscious was protecting himself from that terrible circumstance of failing in front of everybody and mm-hmm. when we discovered those two beliefs then his logical cognitive mind could present the truth that a being raised poor doesn't mean that you can't be successful right. and the other truth that it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks if you're there you're successful that's the proof that you're successful and that the subconscious automatically takes in the uh the truth or the better 
uh, uh, process, the better belief. Does that yeah, make sense? It makes Automatically sense. Automatically does that. No, absolutely. In imposter syndrome, uh, it, that I, so I get that. I, I maybe I, I am not a doctor. I, I am not a therapist. I'm not a psychiatrist, <laughs> psychologist, but I, I have heard it called imposter syndrome when you don't believe that you are qualified or should be there. A lot of times it's tied to career, relationships, whatever. And I get that self-sabotage component as well. I'm curious though. <clears throat> so let's say it's uh, they go through the program with you. You find and tug on the right strings. You understand you bring out from the subconscious to the conscious what kind of things do you do or do your clients do to stay away from recurring or driving that same process again? Because I think that part, part, part of this is almost, um, I'm going to call it muscle memory for lack of a better term. This is where you've lived. This is where you're comfortable. It's hard. That's one of the things. That's why when I get triggered, I have to have alternative positive routines, whether it's working out, whatever the hell it and, is. And the, I, I totally get that. Um, because, okay, Anthony, you, you ask great questions. I really appreciate that. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> so uh, after 20 years of working with people in all kinds of subconscious beliefs that were troubling them and resolving them, there's the, the mechanics of the way it works, the way the subconscious works, are very predictable. If we can discover the falsehood and challenge it with a, an axiom, a, a self-evident truth, mm -hmm. uh, then the subconscious will throw this away and now you can operate on this solid axiom. This is the way the world actually works. It doesn't matter if you belie believed this for 50 years. Now you've got this truth and... The, just like if you change a line of code in a computer software, the as soon as it hits this new line of code, this is what it does. So the triggers that used to be there aren't there anymore. And that's that's when I get the text because like, like you, you can't believe, I'm telling you that this happens and you can't believe it because you have... A, decades, I don't know how long for you, but maybe decades of experience of fighting against yeah. that program that is subconscious. And yeah. the only way that you right now, the only tool that you have to survive is to counterweight it mm -hmm. with some other kind of commitment because yeah. it's, it's there. It's still itching. It's still right. <laughs> constantly running and yeah. you have to distract yourself. You have to put up barriers. You have to do all of this uh, vigilance to make sure that you keep that part of your, your um, let's say, part of your life yeah. all, all caged up or boxed. Mm -hmm. And this is the, the divergent path for me because of my background, because of, of having a, a talent for troubleshooting. And the idea, the prospects of spending the rest of my life being vigilant, fighting against that, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't see myself going down that road and being successful. I was yeah. um, ultimately, I think I was like, 
I'm probably not going to be able to to be that vigilant and I'll fall back into it. Yeah, no, it's a so, real it's a real concern. And and to be clear though, I am not dismissive of your process in any way. Like I I, I respect what you do and I, I love learning about it because uh I, I like to believe myself, my podcast anyway, and me to be agnostic to all recovery processes. Like I'd like whatever works, people should do that. Uh, so I, you know, I've talked to some folks who are 12 steppers or that aren't 12 steppers and they're diehard about it to the fact, to the point where they're dismissive of anything else and wrong. And, and I think it's ridiculous to think like that. And so, I, yeah, I agree with you. What works is what you need to do. Yeah. hundred percent. And I'm always and, down to learn new stuff. So this is great. Yeah. And what works for one person may not necessarily work for the other. And this is, uh, this is what, one of the things that I've discovered within my own life experience of my subconscious and introspection with lots of clients, the, our subconscious doesn't have a logic filter at all. And it's the same space. Like when you wake up from a dream and you know, you're having a conversation with somebody walking on the beach and in, in half a second, just suddenly you're on an airplane with a completely yeah. different person there's no logic that gets you there, but you in the dream space, you don't, the, nothing seems strange about that. Yeah. And that's the way our subconscious works. There's no logic filter. So anything can come in there. So anybody is subject to a subconscious belief tripping them up that way. And, um, resolving it means that now you don't have the triggers mm -hmm. so you don't have that emotion pushing you in this direction of that behavior typically because you've got this long history of dealing with it you've got a lot of habitual things around it like uh let's say a, a smoker who as soon as he gets off work he lights up in the vehicle before he even starts it yeah. And he, you know, drives home, gets, you know, gets done with that cigarette. And then he can go in and be with the family for a little while. Then he has to have one at dinner. He has to have one after sex. You have to all these all these places where the cigarette fit. Right. Yeah. yeah. But once that the actual addiction uh, component, which was the subconscious programming, saying that. Um, I like an identity. Often cigarettes are associated with my identity is mm -hmm. um, because we, we start smoking when we're young and it's cool. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I get that. And yeah. that becomes part of our identity. So when that's gone and we don't need it to validate who we are, and then we get past the, the withdrawals for the chemical, the, the nicotine, then we still have the habit. We, we still have that routine yeah. that's that's a part of our life. So we need to do something to replace those routines where that addictive behavior ha had been. Hmm. So the point is that um, if a client comes to me and they're committed if if they're willing to be open and sometimes especially for men that's <laughs> that's that's a bit of a barrier yeah. to to be vulnerable enough to do the explore exploration and we discover the subconscious belief 
then I haven't had a a single one of my clients who presented with an addictive behavior that it wasn't resolved. They never it relapsed took, or anything like no. No, it it took time for them to believe that it was resolved, and they typically end up giving me, you know, a couple months later that call or text or whatever. Hey, I walked through that fire because we talk yeah. about it, and I I tell them to look for it, and you know, don't don't go out looking to to try. Right. To, yeah, don't try you know, it. Put, yeah, yeah, but circumstance of life the triggers will come and um, you brace for it like you normally would just be prepared, but don't be surprised if that drive isn't there, if that emotion, if, if you're not actually triggered, don't be surprised. And we call that when you're not surprised, we call it walking through the fire because that was the thing that would consume you. And now it doesn't, it doesn't even yeah. touch you. No, I, and, I get that. That's super interesting because like I, I have to, I plan exit, strat exit strategies depending on situations, right? If it's a, a Christmas party or, or, or stuff like that, where I know there's going to be alcohol and depending on where I'm at or who I'm with drugs and things like that. And I, you still have to live your life, right? I, I don't, I go out of my way not to put myself in a position to lose or to be able to make a quick bad choice. It's the best way I can describe <laughs> it uh, because that's part of it, right? I have to, I want to be able to, I want to have to work to make a bad choice. And as soon as I feel the bad choice starting to kind of win the arm wrestling match, I have an exit strategy so I can even be, I can ex excuse myself from the situation. Now, I have to deal with my triggers in different ways. Sometimes they remove from the situation, the trigger melts, goes away in a good way. Sometimes I have to go for a bike ride or run or box or work out and do different things. And I I'm always curious too, because I, I, I am, I, I, I kind of have embraced in a positive sense, my vigilance to stay sober. Like I, this is the new me and I dig it and, and, and I'm happy to be sober and I, and, I, and I love the new life I've created. And I think that one thing I didn't do is get down to like the root cause. I did identify some problems in my past and things that I believed and, yeah. and all of that, but not exactly the way that you were describing, sir. But, and it's interesting to me when I meet people that are in recovery that have, there's a difference between people who enjoy being in recovery and people that it's a grind every day. And I'm not saying it should be a grind. It should be, it should be easy. I'm saying everyone's different. And once you figure out, I, I've figured out, and I'm not cocky about it. I have to work at it every day. And I do my, my patterns, my triggers, I can identify if even I could tell like how my day is going to go just by how I get up in the morning. Sometimes like this is going to be a tough day mentally. I just, sometimes you feel like that where you've got like a heavy load. And the way I describe it most is when you go to the dentist and they put that x-ray vest on your chest, that extra load. And sometimes I feel like that. And I know it's going to be a shit day. So I, this is what I tell myself, no big decisions mm. because I, I don't want to unravel intentionally blow bridges up for no reason because I'm yeah. having a shitty day. So no big decisions, stick to the routine and allow yourself to do nothing. Those are like the three things um, that I am able to, that I have to do. And I say that because I love the concept of what you described, where kind of walking through the fire. And now it's a point of pride for me. I don't do it the same way that you described, but I, I, I'm proud that I 
can say no. I'm proud that I can excuse myself politely. I'm proud that I can go home and just chill. <laughs> and, and and as a relationship scientist, can I be can I be completely candid with you? Uh, yes, Anthony, sir. Right. Uh, the identity part. Now, the the science that we've developed is a is a it's not psychology that's a third person science where you need somebody else it's a first person science for you to study yourself and there are three things that you're studying this is the introspection the science of introspection mm -hmm. you're studying your relationship with yourself as an identity mm -hmm. and with the world as you believe it to be and with uh, your your relationship to different decisions, the way that you make decisions. And um, what you've just described is the taking pride in this achievement. And it's a huge achievement that um, when you when you really think about what you have to do every day, you know that there's this energy that's going to push you in the direction of the addictive behavior you have to put a weight on the opposite side of the table there to, to counterbalance it and that weight has to be just a little bit yeah. heavier than that than <laughs> the does. weight that drives you to the behavior yeah every day you get up and you do that and that to to do that consistently for a significant period of time that's a, an incredible accomplishment that requires a, a conviction and awareness and like like strategy, many technical things. It, uh, it requires you to be vulnerable with people around you so that they so that you can um, uh, how, how, execute your yeah. your exit strategy without causing a social issue or something right, right. there's yeah, there's a lot that goes into that and you've worked very hard to make that happen that's a huge achievement and anytime especially men right the our we validate ourselves our identity by our what we conquer our achievements right and so you've built this new identity as somebody who is um, in sobriety consistently, moment by moment and day by day, that's a new identity versus the addict. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. And I, I, I'm a firm believer of, you know, positive intentions, positive mindset, where I would say, uh, I, I have, I'm careful with the term. I'll tell people with pride, I'm in recovery. I'm an alcoholic yeah. and I'm an addict. But I say that, uh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm living a life of recovery or I'm, I'm alcohol free. I'm drug free. I'm cigarette, I'm, uh, nicotine free because I, I like the positive spin on that instead of I'm a bad dad, like I used to be. Right. Um, yeah. and I'm not saying I'm a great dad. I'm not cocky enough to believe that, but I put the effort in to be a good dad. And I know that a bad choice, a bad moment, a bad decision doesn't wreck me, doesn't crumble me, doesn't drive me back to zero. Uh, I, I, I accept failure in a good way. I did now, this is straight from Gary Vanderchuk. Um, I love the process. I, I've fallen in love with the process of daily improvement. And sometimes there's no improvement at all, but I work hard at it. Sometimes there's a smidge of improvement. Sometimes the improvement is that I've accepted the failure 
bundled it up, used it in a positive way. But I think the messaging that I have to tell myself, I went from always kind of positively confirming the addictions and the behaviors <clears throat> to not negatively reviewing them and keeping them in the forefront of my mind, but changing what made me happy and focusing on, I love the CrossFit me. I love the boxing me. I love the dad me. I love the hardworking me, whatever it might be. And, and, I, and I say that because I really do believe that you are what you think and you are what you do. In, in this, again, I am not a doctor. I am not a therapist. I have no training. <laughs> and I say that because I don't want people to listen to me and think that I'm I'm touting some stuff that I'm not an expert yeah. in. But I am an expert in this process because I'm going through it. Um, well, and, I, and I like you know, it, the positive mindset and the belief that it's going to be okay. Just do the work. And it really works for me. And I, But I love what you're saying in that getting to the source of the root of the problem because the walking through the fire bit, when people get to that point, however they get to that point, get to that point, it really is magical. In the first few times, you can't believe it. You look around thinking, "Holy shit, I just made it! I made it through!" And in that, those moments, man, I'll tell you, huge, huge. And because, like you said at the beginning of the conversation, I hit rock bottom very, very hard, and I bounced. So I hit it a few times, but there was one particular rock bottom that was the hardest, and damn near yeah. killed me. And it's good because I've learned that I needed that. If I didn't have that breaking point, like, I, I don't know what I've been, I would have been motivated to continue, to be honest. Well, that's, that, that's the wake up. And, and some people hit that moment and there isn't somebody around there to help them find their way out of it. Yeah. And, and um, so for those of us who have had that moment and have found our way out, it's because there's been somebody that helped us in some way to do that too. And we're really blessed in that regard. So the, the process for any individual is unique where you're at, you're, you're successful. Um, I think four years, something like that. Four. Yeah. Almost five. It'll be five in May. So yeah. very close. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so I have a couple of questions for you, Please. just just to, to frame things. Yes, sir. You, um, the first question is, um, how much energy do you spend in a day making sure that you stay on course? Uh, so there's, I have to answer in a couple different ways. So yeah. at the beginning, it, it was a full throttle fully aware process where I right. was dedicated. I mean, white knuckle rides most of the day. Now I barely think about it at all. Like it, it, I now. So the short answer is very little time consciously thinking about it. However, it, there's a small caveat. I'm very cautious and my ears are always up for certain kinds of TV shows, too much news, too much social media, too much, uh, uh, reality TV bullshit. And I say that because it, they're not doing anything wrong. They're just doing what they do, but they, they over promote, over pronounce um, the nonsense, the noise, the fighting, the yeah. chaos. So I have to be careful of that because that is a big trigger for me. So now very little of my time is spent mentally around it. Thankfully, it, 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 it could change anytime, but the past two years or so, and it's gotten better over time. 
Very little. And and that is a powerful affirmation. The the difference in how much energy it took, how vigilant you had to be early on, and over time. And this is this is how sobriety re, uh, recovery works: is that the further you're away from that pain reliever, whatever it is, the the more you have that history. It uh, reaffirms the. Uh, identity as somebody who is in recovery and you're going to stay on that course. And so the vigilance ends up being typically, it ends up being less uh, preoccupation. Um, But it's still an effort, still work. You still have to watch still a danger of of slipping back over that edge. Hmm. So the second question I want to (laughs) ask is, um, before you became an addict, before this behavior, what were you? <laughs> That's a wonderful question and a difficult question. It's, it's, uh, it's also tough to answer. Um, <clears throat> I have almost no idea. Like I would have to give that some thought because all I remember is in a lot of moments in my life, doing everything I could to survive. Literally to find peace or tranquility in some form or fashion, to avoid getting hurt. And I don't want to bore people, they've heard the story before, but avoid the abuse of, and, and the pain and, the, and, and all that was going on. So I don't know. But I, the first thing I, and this is the crazy part, I remember distinctly the first time I got drunk and how good it made me feel. And I knew I was fucked. It, it, because, <clears throat> and then it was a long, slow, painful road of torture, the self-inflicted torture, right? Along yeah. the way. But I don't know. That's a wonderful question. And I wish I had a good answer, but I don't want to, I don't want to bullshit you or anybody listening that I have a good answer because I really don't know the answer to that question. What What age were you when that happened? The- so I was aggressively drinking and probably starting in eighth grade. But uh, seventh grade, I started to come off the rails. Okay, so if we if we track back, and this is this is part of the conversation I have with every addict client, because of the belief that, and it's an identity belief that yeah. I am an addict. And anytime we say that, like the the phrase "I am" is oh. affirmative. And when we define ourselves in terms of this behavior, that's why I always say I refer to it as an addictive behavior rather than an identity. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. I'm gonna, I have to give a lot of thought to that question because I'm intrigued to try to, <laughs> no, it's wonderful. Like you've given me this shovel that I haven't had in my hand in a while to try to dig and try to answer yeah. that question because it's. Well, that's, it, that's what I do. That That's the job of an anamiatrist is to give you that shovel to do the introspection yeah. and to teach you the science of introspection of how to look and, and ask your subconscious the questions that will reveal the falsehoods. Because that's anytime we have a false belief, you know, it's like if if you go to the to the park and there's a swing, you look at the swing, it physically moves forward and back. 
But if you believe that it has to move sideways, you're going to have a lot of problems. And, and that's the way our subconscious ends up being. We have this false belief that doesn't fit in the world that we actually live in. And because every time it's triggered, because it's a falsehood, it causes us problems. So yeah. asking, asking somebody who has a long history of addictive behavior, what were you? Because they have this identity of being an addict, yeah. defining themselves in terms of, of that aspect of their life. Asking what were you before? Ultimately, when you when you spend some time on that, you'll get to this point where you can say, I wasn't an addict. That tells you that this is a product of some circumstance of your life, some event. And so then my my third question for you, Anthony, and I, I this is this is where the hope is. Think about if all of that subconscious programming that drove you to the addictive behaviors, if all of that was gone and you didn't have to fight it every day, and this this mountain of, of energy and effort and self-awareness and all of these skills that you've developed, if you could apply those to your life in general, in a broad spectrum, and not having to just fight against this demon, how much better would that be? Amazing. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. You'd, you'd yeah. be like a Tony Robbins, right? You'd be. You'd... <laughs> That'd be great. I love Tony Robbins, actually. But I, I get what you're saying. And, and I love this conversation. Like, I, I, I don't very often end a podcast episode with, with I, I love the homework you gave me. Uh, without intentionally giving it to me with the, the, the second question. It's really super interesting. Cause I remember now thinking back, there are points in the timeline that I can actively and consciously remember now that I'm thinking about it, where my belief system started to get disrupted about um, I suck because I fail because I do this because, and, and I started to empower that bullshit process and behavior, yeah. as you mentioned, and I started to relate to the pain and uh, it, so it's super interesting and I'm going to have to give it a lot of thought and maybe, maybe we could have, you can come back on the show after I've given it some thought and we could talk about it because I would love to share with people what I've discovered because that, what we've just did, I really think is wonderful for not only the, the, the show here, but anyone listening because wow, wow, what a powerful episode. This has been truly enlightening for me. So, so Anthony, I'd love to do that. I, I uh, and if you're willing yeah. um, to participate in it, um, uh, like on, on the sideline here, mm. let's have a little bit of a conversation after the session about the mechanics of the process, so that you can be more effective in that introspection, and um, uh, then we can keep in contact yeah. and you can let me know when, as you progress, if you have questions or whatever, I would love to, because this is, this is for me. Okay. This is, I watch people's lives being transformed in this incredible way. It's, it's the closest thing I can imagine 
to you know watching a, a somebody being born like the the, yeah. the magic of birth right that here's this person that spent decades of their life in this pain and suffering and i witness it in private because they're the sessions are all confidential yeah i can't even tell somebody else about it mm. and i get to see that happen all the time it'd be great for your audience if i love it yeah if we can put it out on uh, on stage, so to speak, and let them see that the the healing where the healing happens is in resolving the subconscious conflicts that create the pain in the first place. And if you're willing, I'd love to be a part of that. Oh yeah, I'm for sure willing. I, I would love it. Uh, I love the opportunity, and this is a good place. Then I think to end this particular episode, you and I will talk. Uh, so don't hang up after after we stop recording. And I, I would love to do the work to get through this um, because this is super intriguing to me. And, and there's so much to uncover. Uh, and I like doing this kind of work. I, I like I, I like this. the pro Like I mentioned, I like the process. So I, I welcome the opportunity and I'm grateful for the opportunity. So right. for anyone listening, this is Rio Timberland and I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation but before we stop recording how do people find you can you just maybe share a website or something so that you're both sure can it's realworks.org and that's r-i-o-w-o-r-k-s dot org um and i i'm not on social media i'm you know I'm entering a new phase of life. Like I've been, <laughs> I've been, I've had this simple life. I've been, you know, the, the guy in the background studying how things work. And now I've published this book called the joy of lucid love, which is all about, ultimately it's all about discovering the truth of who we are and freeing ourselves from all the subconscious bullshit so that we can yeah. manifest that beautiful person that we are instead of putting on a show for everybody all the time. <laughs> and so I printed, you know, I, I wrote the book and it's almost ready to, to in electronic file format and almost mm -hmm. ready for people to download. And um, now I'm, you know, surrounded by people that are saying that I have to have a public face. I have to have social media and yeah. all of those things. So anybody that comes hard. to the website, it's not polished. It's not pretty, but there's quality there. So don't judge. Yeah. That, listen, I think it's absolutely wonderful. Well, real. The pleasure has been mine, sir. And I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. So thank you for the honor of coming My on the pleasure. show. My and pleasure. I'm looking forward to continued conversations. Thank you. Nice to meet you, Andy. Nice to meet you as well.